You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. DPP-4 inhibitors may provide a secondary line of therapy for the treatment of type 2 diabetes. What do we need to know to help our patients? Joining us to discuss this new class of medications for the treatment of type 2 diabetes is pharmacist and professor of clinical pharmacy in the School of Pharmacy at the University of California, San Francisco, pharmacist practicing at the UCSF Diabetes Clinic and Diabetes Teaching Center, part of the interdisciplinary team caring for patients in the UCSF Adult General Medicine Clinics, Dr. Lisa Kroon. And I am Dr. Candace Morello, sitting in for Dr. Stephen Edelman. Dr. Kroon, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Dr. Morello. Dr. Kroon, what are the key indications for DPP-4 inhibitors? Well, the DPP-4s or uh, DPP-4 inhibitors, which are dipeptidyl peptidase 4 inhibitors, are approved for use for patients with type 2 diabetes as an adjunct to diet and exercise, meaning these are approved for use as monotherapy, as initial choice of therapy for people with type 2 diabetes. However, in practice, we're generally using these as a uh, combination therapy or as add-on as a secondary line of therapy for patients in whom generally uh, started on metformin are not reaching their A1C targets. At the VA where I practice, we aren't seeing these drugs used necessarily as second line, certainly as adjunct to other combination therapies, but it's usually when patients have been on oral agents and before they go on to an injectable agent, they're more willing to try an, an oral agent such as one of the DPP-4 inhibitors. Challenging for many providers now since it, we have so many new options for uh, oral agents for people with type 2 diabetes is just how to use these in combination. But in general, the key in terms of combining medications is to ch- combine medicines that have different mechanisms of action. Could you describe the mechanism of action of the DPP-4 inhibitors? Sure. So what the DPP-4 inhibitors do is exactly what their name uh, uh, indicates, is they inhibit an enzyme called dipeptidyl peptidase 4. And this enzyme is responsible for inactivating two incretin hormones, GLP-1 and GIP. And these hormones get released from the small intestines after we eat. And in terms of their pharmacodynamic actions, what the DPP-4 inhibitors do is they increase the hormones, GLP-1 and GIP, by about two to three-fold, and thus uh, increasing the endogenous activity of GLP-1 and GIP. And what they result in is the GLP-1 and GIP both increase insulin release from the beta cells in a glucose-dependent manner. That is, when the glucose levels are increased, these hormones increase insulin release from the beta cells. But as the glucose normalizes, these uh, medications have less of an action. 
The other action that the DPP-4 inhibitors result in is that GLP-1 causes a reduction in glucagon secretion from the alpha cells in the pancreas. And this then results in a reduction in the hepatic glucose production seen postprandially. And for some reason, we're not sure why, but patients with type 2 diabetes have lower levels of endogenous GLP-1. Of the DPP-4 class of drugs, how are these FDA guidelines applied to this drug? Saxagliptin, um, its studies were actually performed prior to these guidelines being released. So my understanding is that the FDA then asked the manufacturers to analyze the uh, reports of any cardiovascular problems with saxagliptin, and these were within the new safety limits that have been set by the FDA. So these new cardiovascular guidelines um, require several things. First of all, in the Phase two and Phase three trials for all new anti-diabetes medications, the manufacturers now need to collect uh, independent cardiovascular endpoints, such as cardiovascular mortality, myocardial infarction, and stroke uh, as endpoints for their studies. Also, patients at higher risk for cardiovascular events need to be included in their Phase two and Phase three trials. And then at the end of the Phase two and Phase three clinical trials, a meta-analysis needs to be performed. And in that meta-analysis, they will be looking at um, any increased risk for cardiovascular endpoints. And depending on the risk, post-marketing cardiovascular surveillance would be required. But it is a challenging um, endeavor for companies to embark on because people with type 2 diabetes are, are already at increased risk for cardiovascular disease. So in order to uh, adequately capture any increased risk with these medications will require the studies to be longer than the typical three to six months. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Candace Morello, and I'm speaking with Dr. Lisa Kroon. We are discussing the new class of medications for the treatment of type 2 diabetes. Dr. Kroon, we've talked a lot about the DPP-4s and the newer drug, saxagliptin. What I'm really interested in is the efficacy and safety of saxagliptin, particularly as it relates to there are a few studies um, that had add-on therapy to metformin. Could you talk a little bit about that? In terms of saxagliptin's efficacy, and I'll comment just on its ability, its uh, efficacy in uh, A1C lowering, um, when used as monotherapy, that is just added on to diet and exercise, uh, compared to baseline, uh, the study participants see an, on average an A1C lowering of 0.5%, which is pretty mild. And that's why we generally don't use um, the DPP-4 inhibitors, and I don't anticipate uh, saxagliptin really playing a role as monotherapy. So when looking at saxagliptin as second-line therapy or adding it on to an, a patient already on an oral agent. For metformin, the A1C lowering is 0.7% compared to baseline and 0.8% compared to placebo. 
And I point out the difference here in looking at these studies, comparing it to baseline versus placebo, because generally for patients with type 2 diabetes, the placebo group worsens. So unlike how we assess all the other drug uh, studies where we compare the effect to placebo, since patients do worse without medication, this tends to sort of inflate the real-world effect of what you'll see with the medication. Moving on to combination therapy with the thiazolidine dione, the A1C lowering on average is about 0.9% compared to baseline. And then they also studied saxagliptin, adding it on to patients already on a sulfonylurea, gliburide specifically, and the A1C lowering was 0.6%. So on average, you could anticipate a 06 to 1% additional lowering in the A1C. Okay, so maybe for patients who are a little bit closer to the 7%, you know, so patients who are maybe 8.4 A1C, 8.0, might, you know, somewhere 7.8, it might be good for patients in those areas? Right. So the exact cutoff um, in terms of, you know, when to add a second oral agent versus when we should be considering even moving on to insulin therapy. You know, the current ADA guidelines that were published back in January suggested A1C cutoff around 8.5%. Mm-hmm. That at that point, if your patient's A1C is greater than that and their goal is you know, below 7%, that adding a second oral drug or possibly even third oral agent uh, may not get you to goal. And you might want to start considering insulin therapy. And in particular, for most patients with type 2 diabetes, we'd be looking at adding um, a long-acting insulin at bedtime. Let's talk a bit about the side effects of saxagliptin or the DPP-4s in general. Sure. So the common side effects that have been seen with saxagliptin in the clinical trials have been upper respiratory tract infection, urinary tract infection, and headache. Now, the infections, it's not really clear why uh, patients on sactagliptin have increased risk of infection, but it may be due to um, what has also been observed is a reduction in absolute lymphocyte count. Then rarely have been, uh, you know, allergic and hypersensitivity reactions such as rash or even facial edema. Now, depending on what other anti-diabetic medications a patient may be on can alter the the side effect profile. For example, when saxagliptin is added to patients already on a thiazolidinedione, these patients did see increased peripheral edema and then, of course, adding saxagliptin onto a patient who's already taking a sulfonylurea or other insulin secretagogue, you can see an increased risk of hypoglycemia. And what's nice with saxagliptin, as with citagliptin, is that there is no weight gain. Just on September 25th, the FDA released information with citagliptin of post-marketing cases of acute pancreatitis. And this was 88 cases of acute pancreatitis for patients who have received citagliptin uh, between October 2006 and February 2009. So this is quite concerning, and this has also been observed with exenatide, 
that since 2007, we have been aware of increased risk of pancreatitis in patients on exenatide. So it's important for providers to not only educate their patients about the potential risk. Again, the recent report is with citagliptin, but saxagliptin is also a DPP-4 inhibitor. It would be important to also closely monitor this and advise your patients that if they have any signs or symptoms of pancreatitis, such as nausea, vomiting, anorexia, uh, persistent severe abdominal pain, to contact their providers. Okay. And we know patients with type 2 diabetes are already at higher risk for even having pancreatitis or developing pancreatitis. That's absolutely right. I would like to thank our guest, Professor of Clinical Pharmacy in the School of Pharmacy at the University of California, San Francisco, Dr. Lisa Kroon. Dr. Kroon, thank you so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. Thank you. It's a pleasure to participate. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. Daddy, what are you reading? I'm reading about something called GLP-1. Is it a robot? No. (laughs) GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism. Its multiple actions are critical to glucose control. Huh? Uh, Okay. Well, GLP-1 works in a glucose-dependent manner. It stimulates the beta cells in your pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibit the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. It also helps regulate food ingestion by slowing gastric emptying in your stomach here (laughs) and making you feel full. Like at Thanksgiving? Yes. Um, I don't get it. Is it important? Well, GLP-1 is important because it impacts the multiple systems affected by diabetes. It also plays a significant role in protecting beta cells, a key to slowing diabetes progression. Unfortunately, many people with type 2 diabetes have impaired GLP-1 secretion and impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. Like Grandpa? Yes. And like many of my type 2 diabetes patients. That's why I want to make sure I'm looking at the whole picture in diabetes. Sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. It's important to look at weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction. Impaired GLP-1 physiology is also a part of the problem, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. So, the GLP-1 robot will help you see the whole picture. (laughs) Yes, I guess, in a way, it will. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about GLP-1 and the role it plays in diabetes, please visit novomedlink.com slash DIA.